Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody, here we are once again, West Point, Mississippi, home of Mossy Oak brand camo, the Gamekeeper Studio. Heating Goodness up out there, isn't it, Bob? It Oof. is hot outside. It was 96 when I walked in. Ah, that's kind hot. Just hot. Yeah. We need some rain, don't we? Ex- expletive, expletive, expletive. And there's not, when you look at the uh, the 10-day forecast, it may be on that 8th or 9th day. change the topic. Yeah. That's too. So depressing. It, I wonder why, why he walked in with his lip poked out and i knew he didn't get any rain it's actually been ill lately it's the rain thing <laughs> last summer <laughs> last summer spoiled us bad yeah it, it was it was perfect you had exactly one rain every single week yeah. for the whole summer and this this heat is kind of different it's like we got what is it lower humidity or I don't higher know pressure? I don't like it's it different. humidity was lower yeah mm, dry too dry different too yeah dry. that's right i did get my water well picks at the house so i got water in the yard i didn't lose my yard at my plants and that's good but yeah mm. that is good my crops my, need rain. my gamekeeper crops do not look good right now mm. well we do i'd say that we have a good crop of sunflowers we've got them early they got the roots down deep in that old prairie, prairie dirt. Black, black dirt and uh they look pretty good that's actually. good to hear maybe they're we'll pretty drought tall they're pretty hardy i saw some of that from a distance mm-hmm. uh when just we sprayed were... them they hadn't had a time to take effect yet but they're they're starting to Nice. Lanny, maybe we'll get an invitation. Maybe. Never know. Yeah. I'll keep my fingers crossed. Depends on if we have a good many. If we don't have many, y'all are welcome to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Every time. Well, it's game on now today. Absolutely. Look, today we've got a really interesting guest. Uh, We've got Dr. Craig Harper. All right. Y'all don't have very many people come on. And you're you're with the University of Tennessee and – in the extension department, if I've got that correctly, and go Vols. And then, well, wait a minute now. Let's not. Let's not. Let's go. So, we have. You know, we've been around wildlife management for a number of years. I'm going to say close to thirty years. Yeah. And your name, we've watched you from afar, and we've read and seen, and and and, and to have you here. Sitting here right now to talk to us, this is very exciting. You know, yeah. look at Bobby. He doesn't look like a stalker. At first but he is. <laughs> yeah, but we're, that, but look, Marcus Lashley, the, the, Bron, they all spoke so highly of you. The, the privilege is mine. I am very happy to be here with you. No, but seriously, uh, 
I've been reading your stuff for years since, you know, before okay, I... Okay, we have another stalker, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we all have our heroes, but, you know, you and, like, Dr. Damaris, and y'all y'all helped start it all oh, for me. Yeah. Well, look here, so. guys. I knew I was going to like him. When he pulled up last night, he, he, his little older truck, and in the back, <laughs> he said, hey, is my chainsaw and all this going to be okay in the back while we went to eat lunch? And I looked in the back of the truck. There's a chainsaw, a backpack sprayer, a drip torch, a bottle of herbicide. Some conservation action. Standard operating equipment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you never know when you're going to need a drip torch in the middle of the summer. No, isn't that true? You were talking about the lower humidity. We were burning last week 96 degrees wow. with only 48% humidity in Kentucky. Did very well. I bet it burned I real it well. Yeah, Got rid of all them I know a lot of people <laughs> think those PhDs sit in an office all day and not this crunch one. numbers, but uh, not based on your tan and all that junk you had <laughs> bouncing around in the back of your truck, uh, I would disagree with that. Yeah. I, I had to get, work boots. I, I got pulled out before they got through this morning, but I had a walk in the woods with him this morning in the fields. Now I could, I could have listened to him all day. Mm. Hopefully we we'll get to time. listen to him now. Before we get started, this is the 99th episode. 99. We're in this uh, process of giving away a bunch of really nice uh, prizes. Dr. Harper, it's a, it's a shame you can't win any of them, but we do have some parting gifts Yeah, we for do you. have parting gifts. That's right. So, Always. We've got Jason McKellar's here somewhere, and he's got a question for us, so we'll have a code for the next. And this is the last question? No, no, no. This is the second to last. Second so to last. This no, one is for no, the. No, this no. is it. This is it, 99. Oh, what about the grand prize? We'll announce all the winners on the 100th episode with the grand prize. There's no question for the grand prize. Oh, okay. So everybody gets so put in for yeah, the grand prize. Every time prize. you enter your que- answer for the question, you get an extra turn to win the grand prize. Okay. For the bottom line brownie. Out of toxic safe. Yep. Answer all yeah, maybe. four questions <laughs> and four chances. Well, I have gotten absolutely none of them right yet, so maybe the, today's the day for me. So today we're playing for a Gunner Kennel gamekeeper edition and and guys if you've got a dog you got to have one of those undestructible i mean they're unbelievable equipment no doubt about it well you see all the time he posts pictures of trucks that are in accidents and how the truck is demolished but the dog survives because he's in that Mm -hmm. crate yeah Mm -hmm. that is a just an unbelievable selling point they're amazing product Great yep. stuff. And Toxie, you great partner met Addison a number of days. He's hunted mm, with He's I mean, a great guy. We've already talked about him. Y- and you got to hunt with uh, yep. R.C. Gunner. Yep, yep. sure did. On that, his, one of his last t- – might have been his last hunt or second last hunt he ever was on. Mm. Yep. It was pretty inspirational. As a dog nut myself, it was very inspirational. Yeah. Yeah, bet so. Awesome product, awesome people. Yep, yep. Good stuff. All right, so we're so, going to have a – we've got a question. Go ahead, Jason. Okay, so – just, just to clarify, too, you have until the 30th, Thursday, to enter this. Thursday morning, we're going to cut it off. So you can even go back, listen to the old ones, still enter your answers. June go, to, go to the Gamekeeper, <clears throat> MossyOakGamekeeper.com website. That's click right. on the You'll So when this airs, you've got two more days. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. All right. So this question, uh, how many million acres does the National Wildlife Refuge System manage? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm going to miss this one, too. In millions. Millions, okay. National Wildlife Refuge <laughs> System. Just National Wildlife Refuges? Yeah, I think just National Wildlife Refuges. Hmm. Let Don't me think here. Is Lanny I, Googling? I, I'm Googling it. I'm not going to miss another one. Yeah. I remember when International Paper sold out, it was like 6 million and something acres of land, and it's tremendously bigger than that, so... Obviously, you're talking about the refuge is not national parks right. and all that, just the National Wildlife Refuge System. You're still pretty low. <laughs> 150 million. 150. 
You looked at Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> this comes from their website. So ninety-five million. There's another answer on here. Yeah. yeah. 95, 95 million. million. 95 million. Plenty got. I'm going to have to give an open book test. I'm not going to call it Google. I'm going to call it Goggle. <laughs> Goggle.com got it for me. That's an appreciation for Max Goggle. Icon. Well, it finally, Lanny gets a. That's kind of anticlimactic. Right. I didn't even pitch an answer, and Lanny cheated. Well, we got the prize for the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And enter 95. Don't enter million. Just 95. 95, 95. is the answer. Spell out 95 or or the... No, number nine and number five. Okay. Can you remember all the answers? If I had enough time, I probably could. Okay. And isn't that great? How you, much land is being conserved now? It That's is. A great point. First thing crossed my mind when it, that bigger number came up. It's like... That's crazy. We have such a resource. And that doesn't include national forests. That's right. Uh, hey, and that's all... The, WMAs. You know, that is just national wildlife refuges. Mm -hmm. And that's for, wasn't it, Roosevelt? Yeah, do we owe that to Theodore Roosevelt? Yes. Was, it, it was yep. his you think, like, the, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is 500,000 acres. That's mm. a big, big chunk. Mm -hmm. And how many of those then you consider comprise the acreage for the National Wildlife Refuge System? So that's, that's a bunch of Great Smoky Mountain National Parks. Sure is. <laughs> that's a bunch. Yep. 200 to be precise. Wow. Look at Toxie over there showing off with his math skills. <laughs> so the answer is 95. I can cipher. 95. All right. 95 on, on episode 99. So we've given you the answer. Enter it. All the winners on the 100th episode. Okay. Okay. All right. That sounds fun. All right. And thanks. we can't win. Bobby, you're not going to get the shotgun. No, I'm not going to get the shotgun. So. Okay. I'm hoping we can pull that thing out of his safe without. He might not. Get he keeps it. on and on about my A5, and I've told the public from the first moment I don't even own one. <laughs> I do not. He's going to give you one, then take it away. I've from got you. a Maxis. I've got a, a Gold. I've got a bunch of Browns, but I do not have an A5. Yeah, we got. Well, it. we know. That's yeah. a Bobby. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's know yeah. Bobby's safe because Bobby's got one. Yeah, we got it. So. Bobby goes nowhere without his A5. Uh. All right, guys. So, look, this uh, – okay, we got through that. We got through all those questions. Now let's get down to business. Yes. And we've got uh, – Dr. Harper, uh, can I call you Craig? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So, I bought my ticket. I want to listen to the man talk. I've already told you that several times. Stuff. Well, so a few weeks ago when Marcus was here, he dropped the bomb that you were working so – you had some cutting-edge data that showed that perhaps mowing clover was not as beneficial as – once thought it as people once thought it was so can we start there and and learn what what you've learned sure we'll start with uh one of the most emotional topics right off <laughs> i mean it's it's striking you can talk about using fire during the summer you can talk about cutting trees you can talk about shooting does you can talk about all these different things but i i I question if anything draws as much emotion out of people when you tell them that, one, you don't need to mow your uh, perennial forage plots as often as they might think, not to say you shouldn't ever mow them because you should. And number two, <laughs> you shouldn't mow your old fields, early successional areas to maintain succession because you don't get the best result out of that for a vast majority of species that you would manage for. That right there draws, you know, just raw emotion out of people. And I, I really don't understand why no. that is. It's, it's almost like the 270 versus 30 alt 6 debate. Yeah. I, I actually, people go crazy. Of, it's kind of a positive. I, I believe it's 
we've evolved as outdoorsmen and especially hunters and stuff and more and more as a gamekeeper people look forward to spending time on their place and working on it and getting on that tractor than they do actually hunting and to take away their bush hogging is like a pastime so i get that but you know the point of it is if you just want to manicure it and make it look great sure but you know we can learn from him and what's best for your place may not be you know well and the thing to consider there's always exceptions there's always differences from property to property etc but in general and that's a key phrase there in general uh and and we've been doing this now easily for for 20 years if you spray your plots in the spring to control incoming warm season weeds and if you spray your plots in late summer fall to control incoming cool season weeds then you don't you find that you don't have to mow your clovers as often to maintain them and so we we generally mow our clovers once a year in august september and so our spring herbicide application has taken care of a majority of both broadleaf and grass weeds that we have of course there will be some escapes there will be some in there that uh, a particular herbicide does not control of course during really wet summers even though you've applied uh, clethodum or some other grass selective herbicide in spring you're still going to see more grasses come out of the seed bank so in a wet year you might have to spray a grass selective herbicide you know two or three times but in general with that one single spring herbicide application and we generally tank mix uh mazethapir generally pursuit with clethodum such as clethodum 2ec and a non-ionic surfactant we're good to go let the plots ride through summertime there will be some broadleafs that uh, i mentioned were either not controlled or they escaped herbicide application the rain you know whatever let that structure develop that little bit of structure is not inhibiting Mm -hmm. or overly competing with the clover growth if you have not sprayed at all then yes, you may have to mow frequently to keep the weeds knocked back. But there's a key phrase. That regular mowing is not getting rid of the weeds. No. It's making them shorter. And so they're still there. And the thing that is of interest and that we've learned so much over the past several years about is many of those is that many of those plants coming in are as or nearly as selected by deer or turkeys and are as or nearly as nutritious as the clovers, uh, selective Mm -hmm. as the clovers for deer or turkeys or uh, provide as much nutrition uh, for the, as the clovers do for for deer or turkey. So it's kind of like an added bonus. You know, you've got uh, then a broader diversity of plants in the clover food plot. It doesn't have to be solid, pure clover. And our, our, data from cameras clearly show that we get more visitation and use out of those plots that are unmowed through the summer than mowed plots if it were different i would be sitting here saying guys you ought to mow your clover plots you know four or five times because it's your job to do that yeah, I, That's I, right. I, I don't <laughs> well, care i'm telling That's you right. subconsciously it's like mowing your yard and you think, oh, I got to keep it neat and clean and edge it, and I want people to drive up and yeah. see my house being neat and clean. It's like it's time to mow my yard again. I love the bush hog. I love the bush hog. I will tell you, from twenty years of trying to grow clover, 
that I personally, just from my own, you know, whatever's anecdotal evidence, um, I've never been able to develop a, a healthy, hardy, lasting clover stand by clipping it, ever, never. And the day that I turned to the right herbicides and started spraying and managing to that first and then fertilizing, depending on what was going on, changed my life as far as what my place looked like. Y'all saw that today. We pulled up, it's like a 20-acre field, and that's been two and a half years or more now that those critters can wake up and there's an abundance of lush food available every single day. It doesn't come and go in a season. It just comes out and comes on. And even in, you know, it's kind of rough looking, but I like the look of it kind of dirty with a bunch of dead ryegrass and some of these forbs y'all, you know, y'all call the names. I didn't know, but actually I like that because there's a super abundance of clover and not much that's out there is really competing with it right now. And I think they would like it more. I think if poults were there, they might could actually get away from something quicker. You know, I, I just like the look of it because there's plenty to eat. A, a, a lot of people are keyed on the aesthetic. They like to see clean, green, and even. And if that's what you like, that's fine. You, you're, you're not a bad person. You know, <laughs> you like to see clean, green, and even. What I'm saying is that's not necessary. Right. Yeah. And like for the food plot that we looked at today, it had some Johnson grass, it had some uh, uh, vasey grass, it had some thoroughwort, et cetera, in it. The only thing you would gain by mowing that right now is that it might look prettier to you because you're not going to control it by mowing it now. It's going to grow right back. And so why not wait until later, right. make your mowing time and your herbicide application time and expense more efficient. You mow it once towards late summer. The basic grass and the Johnson grass go back, grow back, let it get to the appropriate height. Then you can hit it with your late summer uh, herbicide application that's also going to be good for those incoming cool season weeds. Mm-hmm. You know, imazethapir is soil active. And so by applying that herbicide at that time, it then becomes active in the soil solution. And so then when many of those cool season weeds begin to germinate, they're killed and you don't even see them. Mm -hmm. And so that's a pre-emergence application over a clover plot that obviously is, is, is growing. Around here, a lot of, a lot of us use them as a mox. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good one as well that, Commonly some, use some broad leaves and grasses. Alfalfa, and, mm-hmm. and, and you can use that over chicory. We use pursuit over alfalfa, chicory, uh, red clover. Of course, the white clovers, all psych. So, uh, there, you know, there, there's and there's other products. Uh, there's some good products out there that helps you maintain your clover fields. The the bottom line is you're going to need to visit these sites. You know, at least two or three times a year to keep them maintained, as opposed to just leaving them totally alone and right. and, and growing up. Sure. It, it's just making your time and money a little more efficient. Well, the, choosing how to the do reason it. that one looked as good as it actually did, and you said Johnson grass and some of this, it actually wasn't to an invasive point where it hindered much growth at oh, all. Oh no, right. That's because we had sprayed it before, like last fall, like exactly what you said do we did last fall. And that's why you don't see any more out there than there is. Now, I wish I had not sprayed it quite so early because there was some of that ryegrass. That's my biggest single problem in all our food pots as far as an invasive. Obviously common, yeah. Oh, so a, a fall ter- application of, of 
grass selective herbicides yeah. such as clefum is very so you would, but but not waiting until spring when when it's already right. you know Head flowering out. And, right. and heading out right but you wait till the frost when a lot of the good weeds are have died back for the year and then the, like that ryegrass has jumped a little bit in the uh fall or later fall is that would that be an appropriate time you, you have an option there according to what's in the field in late summer. If it's things that you're wanting to get rid of, I would go ahead and spray earlier. If it's things are, that are beneficial and there's not that many of them, that's a relative term, not that many of them according to your own personal weed threshold, right. uh, you can wait in, until later. Um, what you just mentioned is a great strategy for uh, managing early successional Absolutely. communities. That's what I was thinking. Like if you have tall fescue and if you're further north of course it's going to be tall fescue and timothy and orchard grass waiting until after a couple of frost when the desirable warm season forbs in the field have either gone senescent if they're perennial or if they have died if they're annual then you get a selective herbicide application out of a broad spectrum herbicide glyphosate mm. two quarts per <laughs> acre and you're smoking the perennial cool season grasses getting rid of those and then next spring you've gotten rid of that carpet and you freed up the seed bank and you get lots of stuff coming up that's interesting and mm-hmm. I, I hope we hit on that some more later for sure Lanny, did you need to go to the restroom yeah always can i stop for a minute <laughs> no i had a question about clover um so in the thought you know for me historically has been you clip to help control those weeds but then you clip because this fresh new growth is more attractive. I think maybe this study probably dispels that. And d- d- speak to the point of, I think I heard y'all talking about biomass. There's actually more tonnage of food left if you don't clip it. Is that right? Well, there is uh, a standard agricultural principle, uh, especially in uh, cattle industry and you're managing hay, uh, you're managing your pastures for what livestock, of course, those are dominated by grasses, mm-hmm. uh, almost always, perennial grasses. Well, the oldest part of the plant is at the tip of the leaf. That's the way grasses grow. And so by clipping it, absolutely, you have just removed the oldest portion of the plant, oftentimes the least digestible and unpalatable portion of the plant, mm-hmm. um, to encourage fresh growth that is more highly digestible. It is younger Therefore, the plant cell walls haven't thickened. The lignin content is not as great. But deer, with a couple of exceptions, don't eat grass. Right. Um, obviously, the cool season grains, wheat, oats, and rye are exceptions. And in late winter, you get perennial grasses just starting to come up when there's hardly anything else green, especially if you're not managing your property the way right, you right. should be. You'll see deer selecting some of those little bitty grass shoots coming up, which at that time are, are palatable mm-hmm. and, and the uh, digestibility of them is, is high. But other than that, deer by and large aren't, aren't eating, eating grass. They're concentrating most of their foraging on forbs, select species if they are available and you think about how the forbs grow they come up and you know you got all these stems limbs coming coming off the central portion of the plant and the leaves are produced out at the ends of the stems all the way through the growing season Mm -hmm. and so at any time there are fresh young leaves on many of these forbs as they're growing up and so by clipping it 
you've just removed all of this biomass. So if you clip all of the biomass off of a ragweed plant, for example, that is at the ends of the stems and digestible that's that tall, you clip it, and then you, you know, a week later or whatever, you clip the, uh, the forage that's growing up from the ragweed starting to grow again, the nutritional content and the digestibility of those are going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Now, if you start pulling and clipping those old leaves on the ragweed plant or on the blackberry or whatever it may be, those are going to be much less digestible, and the uh, nutrients that are available in those are going to be much less. So let's say, for example, you clip the, the ends of the, the stems where the young leaves are that have just uh, emerged. Commonly, the crude protein content, for example, will be 25 to 30%, whereas the leaves down here near the bottom, they might be 16 to 18, which still is good. But, but not it, as it, good. it's much less. And that's why deer are called concentrate selectors. They're concentrating their, their uh, foraging on select plants and select plant parts that are most highly digestible. So we were talking. Concentrate we, selectors. Yeah, we were like using that. grass management for livestock and, and clover for wildlife, and that's just not the right It has been promoted incessantly right. over the past 30 years. And let's say, for example, you have alfalfa or red clover. Now, there's two perennial forages. They grow a true stem, and, and they can get quite lignous, especially alfalfa, yeah. a, a, almost a woody-type stem, you know. But think about it. Are deer eating the alfalfa stems that right. are so large? Well, no. And so they're eating the leaves out at the tips of the alfalfa plant, ditto with, with red clover. And so if that's what you're sampling and sending to the lab, the nutritional value of that is the same as if you had mowed the plot and then it's growing back. Hmm. And so, again, your biomass, when, when you mow your plots, what you're doing is, is lowering the biomass of the forage that's available. And I am not talking about total biomass, mm -hmm. and which is commonly done in, in agronomy. They will, you know, throw a frame out there, and they'll clip the whole plants off, you know, like an inch tall or whatever, send all that to the oven, dry it, and then send it to the lab for nutritional analysis. Guess what? That's going to be of much lower quality than if you're a deer manager and you're just clipping off the portions of the plant that the deer eat. It's a, it's a huge difference right. in uh, the, the quality of the, of the plant quality of the forage sample and so even if you're clipping the the leaves that the deer are eating you still have a greater biomass than if you clip the same leaves after you have mowed and let it go for a week so we've got graphs where we show the biomass of unmowed clover plots and then we're mowing at four week intervals you know just to to pick an interval right you know that's what you read and you know whatever online and so you know here we go we're mowing it week one week two week three well the mowed sections never catch up in biomass to the unmowed sections and in the unmowed sections the biomass is only represented by the leaves that the deer eat not the whole uh whole plant or the stems you know makes sense if if you've got uh, I, mean, I guess if you have too much forage you might you know we talked about maybe clipping it if it's all about to bolt it's like you know 70% I was already made flour and whatever and you wanted to, maybe that'll extend it a little bit longer before it goes dormant. But if like today we looked at that and there's no issue there. There's no need to clip anything. The deer are clipping it. And it was like a 20 acre film. They are mauling it. 
So you don't need anything to stimulate more growth or to clip anything. And and even with something like chicory that truly does bolt, got a big old stem mm-hmm. and got the little purple flowers coming up, the deer and the turkeys are eating the the leaves off of that bolt all the way up, eating the flowers. We saw that today. Eating yeah. eating the 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 bolt going down. I mean, and it's still highly digestible, highly nutritious. We just have this perception. Well, the blooms are attracting insects, too, which we want out in the field. Mm-hmm. So Obviously important for turkeys. Well, we also mentioned today, too, that I think, you know, people will listen to his advice more now when diesel is 5 and $6 a gallon. Yeah, that's a motivator. Because you know, that's, that's a big cost savings. Sure. So, so, Craig, I usually have a good idea of, a, of an answer to a question before I ask it, or at least I try to, but I don't have a clue on this one. I'm just going <laughs> to ask you. How do you feel about clover? Oh, I'd, I'd love clover. I, I, we plant clover. When I say we, that's my graduate students and, and technicians, and I, we, we plant clovers every year or and, or and or manage them, yeah. So so if a guy's got a property, clover it needs to, in your opinion, make up a, a, a portion of those hunting plots as a management tool? I, I don't think they have to. I think that is a great option if you want to. Uh, for, for hunting plots for deer, um, of course, there are annual and perennial options that are outstanding. And to really provide nutrition for deer during the time of year that is most critical, and that would be April through June. You know, by early July, approximately 50% of the antler production is done, and this is the critical period. Sure. Your perennial forages that are greening up, in, in late winter, early spring, and they are really pumping out the volume in that April to June time period. And so th- that is a great addition, and I'm going to call it supplement, hopefully, to your other habitat management practices where you're providing high-quality forage in your woods and in your fields as well. Yeah, yeah. And so not only for those bucks with velvet antlers, but the the, the pregnant does. We, we just see it being so important to that deer herd. It certainly can affect her milk production. You know, the quality of her milk will remain the same, but the amount of milk that she produced is what is the limiting factor there. Hmm. That, that, that That's interesting. You know, starting... I'm sure you guys are as well. I'm seeing does that look like they're about ready to pop mm-hmm. on, on cameras. So it's we're not maybe we're thirty days, yeah, something like that yeah. away. So it's going to get them. They're, they're going to be even more ready to and, pop. And obviously, that's later down here than it is a little farther north right. when most of the phones have already hit the ground. But yeah, we're seeing pictures on Instagram. People but, seeing phones. So but, the point is, adjust to where you are in your timing and the timing of the rut, timing of parturition. So nutrient availability. You no, know, until I really started paying attention to these uh, uh, these pregnant does, watching them on cameras in the last few years, it is it must be so stressful on them to have that baby because you see them go from these big fat just yeah, to, to you just start seeing all their ribs. You can see their ribs. That's right. This, they're such a precious thing. So uh, yeah, plenty to eat. Think about that and to feed another mouth. And then or two. the heat, yeah, or two or three in some cases, yeah, but two, yeah. let's just say two if they're real healthy. And then this heat, like we're having now, and all these like horse flies. Oh, and, man. And I mean, they're just covering them up and stuff. And on top of that, bobcats, coats, you know, stuff trying to catch and kill your little phone. I mean, it's amazing. I know yeah. deer are much more resilient than a poor little, you know, poult and whatever, turkeys that we talk about a lot, but it's still, that life is so precious. Yeah. 
for yeah, a reason. Really is. So we've we've pretty much nailed down the whole clover thing. Um, so Could, we might wait, make one more point. All right, we'll let's come on. Let's the, keep the, making the, points the, here. The mowing thing. Okay, we're, we're talking about perennial forages. Now, for your annual forages, there shouldn't be any mowing because your annual forages, such as crimson, bursine, balanza, arrowleaf clovers, you know, you're largely planting those in, in late summer, early fall, and, and they're greening up out of the gate and providing green forage through the winter, but then they're dying the following April, May, June, early July, according to which clovers you planted. And so at no time during that cycle would you be mowing them. But if you're maintaining annual clovers, which is a great food source and can be used in many different situations, then you can spray those plots after the clovers die if you've waited, you know, two or three weeks or however the plant response is fields filling up with weeds according to what they are, according to your objectives, which, by the way, could be outstanding brooding patches at that time. So then you can spray those plots just with a glyphosate application, wait three to four weeks, and by uh, August, September, mowing that dead vegetation, and your crimson and arrowleaf clovers will reseed naturally, and you can no-till top sow a few others if you want or drill in some wheat or oats. So I, I, a lot of people confuse the perennial clover management with the annual clover management. Right. I just thought that might be worth mm -hmm. mentioning. So I would throw in, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you would still have a hole in your or a chink in your armor if you relied on those exclusively. You've got a window from whatever May, early June, through oh, right, into right, the yeah, summer yeah, yeah. that you've got to fill, and that's you know in the clover world, that's you know, only with a white or these Ladanos we have. When you're up in in Tennessee and and north of there in particular, you know our our perennial forages are like this in mid December through early March. Lip you know, high, they're, they're, as Bobby would say. Yeah, they, they've they've gone into their winter dormancy, and so you're relying on annual forages to help you out in your food plots at that time. But but exactly, I, I, I like to show a chart that shows the forage availability of the annual cool seasons, and when they die, the perennial cool seasons are busting out of the gate, and then when they're beginning to go down in summer dormancy, then your annual warm season. Are, are really productive, you know, your soybeans or cowpeas or joint veg or what have you. Right. Got to have a plan. So can you speak to uh, these uh, these forbs that you refer to, these beneficials? Uh, I think ragweed might be one of them. Can you give some examples of some beneficials that you like seeing? Oh, yeah. Uh, lamb's quarters, obviously we've mentioned ragweed and partridge pea, uh, Carolina geranium, uh, daisy fleabane, uh, old field aster, bushy aster, pokeweed. I mean, there's there's lots of them. And even uh, not in a food plot necessarily, but like in early successional areas, some uh, blackberry, dewberry. I don't want a food plot to be taken over by any of those plants because then it's not a food plot anymore. It's an early successional area, and I would be managing that differently. Likewise, in an early successional area, I wouldn't want any one of those to take over the whole field. I would want a, a greater variety of plants that are available that are coming in and out at different times, providing deer, turkeys, songbirds, whatever the case may be, a little something different during the year. But, but there's a wide suite of, uh, of those species that are available. And they're all sitting there. Well, I shouldn't say that. They are sitting there free for the taking in the seed bank, 
but everybody's seed bank is different. Mm-hmm. And and realizing that and seeing what your seed bank contains, you know, that's kind of like opening Christmas presents. You never know what's going to be in there. And so you open a box. A lot of times I'd rather not have this, but this <laughs> one is great. And so if you don't like it, kill it. If you do like it, great. Keep it. Yeah. Is there a significant difference between the nutritional value of annual and perennial clovers, or is it just a timing thing? Um, if if you during their period of before the annual clovers go to flower, mm-hmm. their nutritional value is is going to be pretty consistent with that of of the perennial uh, forages, gotcha. yeah. and you're typically looking anywhere from crude protein values of like twenty three to to thirty. 33 maybe wow. somewhere in there you got calcium levels that are easily uh one to three percent when the maximum amount by deer is 0.5 percent mm. you've got uh phosphorus levels that are 0.3 to 0.5 percent the most a growing buck is going to use is 0.1 percent and and that's ditto with these naturally occurring forbs also uh the the Crude protein, calcium, phosphorus, potassium values, they are way in excess of, of what uh, a deer needs for, for maximum growth. Sounds like we need to throw those mineral licks away and plant more clover. <laughs> well, I still like to get pictures over my licks. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to get the pictures, I, but you're right. Salt. I the clover, Lanny. I, I do too, <laughs> but, uh, you know, deer like the taste of salt just like – I was mentioning if uh, if Toxie was walk out there and bring in a watermelon and bust it open, first thing I'd do, where's the where's salt? Where's the salt? And deer do the same, but uh, you're you're not likely to see any effect mm-hmm. in terms of antler growth, fawn survival, weights per sex or age class or any of that with with mineral licks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And so I keep going back to these and thinking about these native forbs that are there in the in the seed bank, and so. They're there for the taking, for the for the most part. So some properties might have more of one than another. Like, Definitely. Um, and so a guy can learn how to manipulate his soil to encourage those plants. Yeah, tell him you said this morning he mentioned, I asked him how long can some of this stuff be dormant in the soil and then wake up? Um, dormant or what we'd call hard seed yeah, or you can easily, bring one to life yeah, yeah however long e- that is e- easily many of these plants the seed may be sitting there in the in the seed bank for 25 100 plus years i mean we, we really don't know and and of course there's it a difference uh, between uh different species right. but the longevity longevity of many of these seed to remain viable in the seed bank is is astounding it's crazy. You know, it? you think about it if, if you go in and clear a section of woods, it might be 100, 150 years old. What's going to pop up immediately? You got all of these uh, annual and, and perennial grasses and forbs coming right. up. Well, where did they come from? Some of them came May from have birds. Blown in or no, something. No, no doubt some of them came from birds, but many of them came from the seed, dormant seed and dormant rhizomes that are present in the ground just waiting for that chance again with adequate uh, sunshine and, and uh, temperature, available sunlight, lack of competition, and, and also for the leaf litter not to be this deep and smothering everything. Right, but when right. that is removed, here they come. You know, one I've always seen that, that I've just taken a mental note of is like when a big old hardwood tree falls over and then you've got that big pile of dirt and root 
you almost always see a bunch of pokeweed pop yeah. up on oh, those. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and it, it just makes you wonder how how old was that? How long was that seed sitting there? It's and like I say, some, some of that might have come about. from birds, you know, sitting sure. in the trees and, and dropping the seed. But uh, a lot of those things have been laying there for, for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think every time we do this podcast, one of us looks at the other one and says, nature is amazing. Oh, yeah. And, and, nature, is, uh, nature is amazing. And, and Go, you know, nature. We were reminded today, you know, the the clover plots are are beginning to stress a little bit with this intense heat. But when you go to places where the soil has been disturbed and you've got all these naturally occurring plants, they weren't wilting down. No, they were jamming. Mm -hmm. They were were looking perfectly happy because they're adapted to these conditions. These soils, these temperatures, this climate, some of those don't even have their most vigorous growth until temperatures are in in the upper 80s, for example. And so they're still trucking along. You still got those young leaves out there at the ends of the twigs. So in the driest times of the summer, you still can have plants that are providing optimal uh, nutrition for, for deer. So I've got. Let's go back to this clover that y'all looked at. That's beginning in the last couple of weeks to show signs that that, that, that we, we hadn't had much rain and it's and it's ninety five degrees. Out I, here. Honestly, it, I was tickled to death. It looked as good as it even did, given that we hadn't had any rain in so long and it's so hot. Sure. Ground is cracked wide well, open. Yeah, yeah. ground so, cracked wide open. Well, still. some my question is somebody that's just hard, you know got their mind made up that they want to mow their clover, now would not be the time to do it, would it? That would be stressful in and of itself on the plant. Kill it, probably. Well, think about this. That's what I'm asking. If if it was stressed enough that it's wilted down on the ground, you're not mowing it. Yeah. You're just driving over with a tractor. That's right. You're, <laughs> you're scalping the surface to be right. able to mow it. And and so you're you're knocking weeds down that might be growing out there. And, 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 and that is fine, but my point, again, is you're not gaining anything by mowing at that time than if you were to wait a little while, let the wildlife use whatever cover structure is out there, perhaps eat many of those plants that are available, and then, see, the majority of those plants, they're not going to flower and begin to, you know, think about seeding until late summer, early fall. And so your annual mowing in August, September, for example, is clipping those off before they go to flower and seed so they're not adding to the seed bank to build up more and more. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Dudley, you got a question for him? Uh, I've, I've got a million. And, you know, we, <laughs> we talked about it a lot. We, we talked about it a lot this morning. But, um, you know, so we, we know how important clover is in general and, and food plots. Uh but just say a landowner has a, a lot of ground that's open. Um, uh, I, I, I think I know what the answer is, but you wouldn't say to plant clover in every opening. Would, uh, uh, wouldn't you want to have some other type, you know, w- I, this I new would. diversity word uh, that's mm-hmm. been around forever, we're starting to realize how important that is. So just on, a, on an ideal scenario, uh, and you did have a big field, how much of it would be clover, and, and what would you do with the rest of it? Well, what I begin to do first off is, is for a property is look at the aerial photo. Let's see what we have. And then I'm evaluating what are the objectives of the landowner. Sure. And what are the limitations? You know, 
let's just say, because this is true with uh, the vast majority of people in the eastern United States who are managing their property for wildlife, it's for deer and turkeys. And so I want to see good fawning cover distributed around, which also is going to provide either good brooding cover or good nesting cover, which isn't necessarily the same. That's not to say a turkey wouldn't nest in a field of annual grasses and forbs because they do, but I would rather have more structure out there, more overhead plant cover to help her hide her nest and hide herself than some other situations. I would want more annual plants to provide, in general, better brooding cover and better foraging for deer. The, the annual forbs, on average, this is not true for all of them, are more selected and have greater nutritional content than the perennial plants. Of course, there are exceptions, such as the desmodiums, pokeweed, etc. There's several perennial plants that are very good. Old field aster comes to it. Right, desmodiums, that plant with the triangular... Uh, thing that Baker's sticks lots, to you. What we call it. Right, right, right. right. And, and so, you know, all early succession is not the same. You know, and, and we broke this down earlier where, where, you know, we talked about if you disc the field, you know, the majority of the plants coming up usually are going to be annual forbs and grasses. And after a year, and especially two, that's going to change over, and you're going to see a predominance of more perennial plants, both grasses and forbs coming in. And, and a lot of times, especially by that third year, some brambles. And according to the site, by the third or fourth year, could happen on the first. But in general, by the third or fourth year, you're going to see a lot of woody stuff coming in. So baby so, trees. Right. And so you just saw three changes in the plant community from an annual-dominated plant community to a perennial-dominated plant community, to a woody-dominated plant community. That is ecological succession. That is the successional process. And, and we try to break this down. Ecological succession is a very complex subject. For sure. But <laughs> to, to break it down, to hopefully help people understand it, you know, in the most easily explained process, we would call the annual forbs and grasses the first successional stage. And then when that plant community changes over to become dominated by perennials, we call that the second successional stage. And then once woody plants begin to dominate it, we call that the third successional stage. And, and we talked about and pointed out how the first woody plants, you know, whether it's eastern red cedar, Virginia pine, winged elm, sweet gum, green ash, so many of these that, you know, are brought in by wind and brought in very quickly by, by birds, etc., they are relatively, most of them, short-lived. And so they might not be on the site for 50 to 60, 70 years. And then that forest, and, and that, is, that is a forest that has uh, established through succession, it will change over into a different uh, suite of tree species, most oftentimes oaks, hickories, maples, you know, et cetera, then that's the fourth successional stage. And on some sites in the country, you can have American beech, sugar maple, hemlock, white pine, et cetera, those species that can grow in shade. If there's no disturbance, and it might take 100, 300 years for that fourth successional stage to finally turn into a different forest type, well, there's five possible successional stages. Right. And right. so early to late. This was early, this is late, and I won't hold my middle finger up at you, but there's middle. And so <laughs> as you go from that early into that mid with some 
woody stuff coming in, that's when a lot of magic happens. Right. Uh, that, that's when some of the, the best deer cover you're, you're finding, especially for fawns, that, that's really good turkey nesting cover. Right. Not usually so good for, for brooding. Right. And and the forage value is still there, but but it's it's not as good as it was right. in general back there in that first uh, successional stage. So, thinking about distributing these different types of uh, successional stages around on your property, right. is that is, is it very generally important. speaking one to five years, one to three years? You know that those first stages when it becomes starts to become woody, yes. like we looked at today. Would you say? All right, now if you're on a bottomland site. And, and there's a creek flowing beside the field. And, and along that creek, there's sycamore and right. green ash right. and sweet gum. You're going to have to do something to maintain that field in early succession pretty much every year. Wow. Because those right. those trees are just raining the right. seed down. And it's you know, right. better soil. It's going to grow. Well, especially if floods, too, and, and, and I'm you sure. Can, you, right. And you can oftentimes see trees growing 6 to 12 feet tall in one year. Oh, on, easy on, around on, here. On some of those <laughs> Yeah, we sites. didn't have that much. But I was just thinking about rotating if you had enough early successional patches. Let's call them that. Yeah. You know, it's like a food p- patch or whatever or like a, a tree patch. I mean, let's, it's that important. We should have a patch for it. So if you had enough to, to say, a third, a third, a third, and you were going to keep some – uh, or maybe, you know, you lean towards the year one uh, to grow the annuals. But I'm just saying if you could you could rotate those every three years, kind of start over, then you would keep them all within that early successional. And what you've just described is, for example, you got a big field and you are disking or burning right. or spot spray. Well, hopefully you're doing a little spot spraying on all of them each year because there's always going to be some plants in there you don't want. Some kind of disturbance on a third of it each year. That way you've got, you know, a one-year community, what's called a one-year rough, a two-year rough, a three-year right. rough, that okay. kind of thing. Exactly but, what I was thinking about. but also think about the topography and the aspect when you're planning your habitat management and where you're going to have these different successional stages. I'm not going to try to put my early succession usually in the bottoms unless, for example, I'm going I'm to disc it like every year, every other year. I'm going to have those more on the uplands and those bottomlands, especially as, if, if manpower is limited, et cetera, uh, that's ecologically predisposed to be forest. It, yep. it wants to be forest. And historically, that's not ecologically disposed to be burned frequently. But those sites that are more exposed on a southern or a western aspect, you can burn those very frequently, very easily, because they're, they're driest, and those are the ones, of course, that burn most often historically. Yeah, wow. that would be a lot of work to keep some bottom ground in early successional with all the stuff you know wing wing seeds flying in all right. the time and it's it's such a now, productive soil an know. exception and that's not to say that that can't be done an exception is let's say for example you have a great crop of ragweed and or partridge pea in a bottomland field that is stimulated perfectly well by disking right. every year from from November to February. We and have so lots of giant ragweed in our yeah. bottom. You, you can have that, keep that trucking year after year. For or you've time. or you've got the person that that's all you know. They may own eight hundred acres in the Mississippi Delta. That's right. And so they want to have different stages. But but, uh, but that, if you have you that know, much, a lot of that. If it's all open ground, a lot of that's going to be a long way from the tree line. Sure. And so over here, you're not going to have the problem 
uh, with the trees that you do next to the tree line. And that's another thing that I try to get people to think about. If they're managing a given field for early succession and you've got some problems with, with woody species coming in, kill the mama trees. All those, all those problematic species, go into your woods 50 to 100 yards all the way around it and, and girdle and spray to kill the mama trees that are throwing all those seed in there and leave the desirable trees that you're not fighting in the field every year. That, I mean, that, that takes a little work. It's not that bad. It's actually enjoyable if you get into it. But th- that will save you a lot of pain, effort, toil, and trouble down the road. Gotcha. So we'll, I've got you know, he's never going to get to the next question because yeah. we keep asking. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> we got to do five just podcasts. Assume you have a track and it's one hundred percent timber. Uh, the only way you'll ever start this process is to cut some trees. That's correct. There's no other way to do it. You've got to start cutting some timber. Just occurred to me, and, and quite honestly, if you're smart and doing the best thing for your wildlife, you'll do that in a very diversified manner also right right and so think about this that's like a a beautiful blank canvas and you look at the photo of the property you overlay the topo you overlay us and, and you kind of blend that in so you can see the photo with the, with the topo blended in and then you overlay the 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 soils map and you add in your roads and trails now all of a sudden you are placing the different vegetation types or successional stages, it's all forest right now. Mm-hmm. But you're deciding, okay, where am I going to have areas that I'm going to maintain as thick bedding cover for deer? Where are the areas that I'm going to try to burn or disc on a relatively frequent basis to have the best uh, uh, areas for natural foraging for deer or nesting cover or brooding cover for turkeys, et cetera? And, and let me also say before we go too far down this road i don't want to give the picture that you have to have early succession early successional vegetation to have good forage or fawning cover or nesting cover for turkeys turkeys are perfectly happy to nest in the woods the trick is your management are you managing the woods to provide nesting cover in the woods right most times that's not happening and so the turkeys are nesting there with relatively little vegetation cover and when they have better cover available in the understory that's when you can see better nesting success so the the structure could be in the woods or in an open area but it goes back to a a recent study that you've done that was showing that there was less than five percent of this ideal successional habitat if i'm saying that right that the turkeys desired to nest in. There's, there's very little. The point being, there's very little of that available. Yeah, uh, we're we're still in in this project. Uh, this is the sixth year we've uh, uh, put transmitters on. I don't know, it's almost 650 turkeys uh, or 650 hens, and not counting the gobblers. And I think we've monitored 578 nests. And uh, in, in five counties in South Middle Tennessee, and that's the area that, that has had the greatest decline in harvest over the last 10 years or so, there's three counties down on the bottom end of that that's really seen a significant decline. The two counties adjacent on the north end of the five, they have seen no decline or perhaps even a, a slight amount of increase. And so we have 
10 study sites in those five counties, two counties of which have not seen a decline, three counties that have. And so it's been very interesting to see uh, what the productivity has been. And so in those counties, anywhere from three to four percent is in either early succession or shrubland. However, the turkeys, the hens, are seeking out those areas, and even though early succession might represent 3% of what's available to them, uh, about 25, almost 30% of the nests wow. are in those areas. Now, we have a relatively high success rate, nest success rate in those areas. It's on average around 30-some percent, which is, which is decent. But that doesn't mean that's better than what's in the woods. Regardless of where the nest is, what at least our data have shown is, is helping influence the success is the cover that is available around the nest, where the hen is choosing to nest, and whether it's in the woods or in early successional areas, if there is sufficient vegetation, especially over the nest, around the nest, we're seeing, I think it was like a, a 2% increase in, in daily nest survival, which, you know, over time can be that pretty adds good. Up. That's a lot. Yeah. 2% a day. Two percent daily, two percent increase in daily nesters. Compounded yeah. daily. Yeah. So, guys, did we finish that about the blank canvas? I think there was a little bit more that you wanted to add, and I think you were going toward about thinking about the huntability of the property, if I remember right. Absolutely. Um, normally, when somebody has a management plan developed for their property, they get something that tells them, okay, here's an inventory of your woods, hopefully an evaluation of your woods for whatever your stated objectives are. Here's the state condition of your fields and how you might treat them. And uh, you, you might plant these things here in your food plots. It's like a general canned recommendation. Uh, very seldomly do I see a management plan that is actually written for the huntability of mm -hmm. the property while also, and I'm going to say maximizing either the nutritional value and the cover value of that property for whichever species you're, you're managing for. And I know everybody, you know, in general is interested in deer and turkeys, but which is number one? One has to be a little over the other. Right. And so turkey management helps deer. Deer management in general helps turkeys. But there are differences. There are differences in, in timing. There are differences in the exact structure of cover that you would want, et cetera. And so articulating your objectives is, is very important, whether that's for turkey hunting, for deer hunting, and, yes, a combination of both. And so you look at that photo, you look at the the topographic map on top of your property photo, the soils, your roads and trails, and all of a sudden you begin to see, okay, ecology, the topography, the biology of the species is beginning to show me where to place these things, and I'm meshing this with my access, the predominant wind directions. I'm also going to set up some places for wind directions that are unusual, and there's almost always going to be some areas of the property I, I don't have access there. And so I find that very important to work on providing yourself access to all portions of the property, working off of that. And, you know, for example, with deer, 
there's not many people that concentrate on, okay, I'm going to set up a deer bedding block, holding cover for deer right here, and I'm going to maintain it as that cover. Just like you would set up, okay, this field is going to be a food plot. I like to do the same thing with deer, so I know at any given time, this is where the deer are bedded on this property, at least the majority of them. And we know that because of cameras that we put in there. Before and then after we create these bedding blocks, it, it, it is, it's astonishing at how much use these, these things get. The deer get in there, and then you'll just see them on camera. They're just standing there. <laughs> like for two hours, and their ears are twitching this way, looking around, and then they'll lay down, and then they'll get up, and I mean they're just literally hanging out there, but like they from feel so from, safe from, right there. From two to five o'clock, they're just there. Yep. And is that not powerful? Yeah, to, it's to very. I know where my deer are. Instead of one, day, yeah, I think they 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 bed over yonder somewhere, or oftentimes off of the property on the neighbor. So thinking about setting up cover that holds your deer and how do you manage and maintain that cover is very important and then you're you're meshing in your food plots perhaps according to your soils especially for your big food plots because we can grow a relatively small hunting plot on very poor quality soil you know we add lime appropriate fertilizer etc etc we can get something to grow but on those big ones that's cutting down on the amendments and the money that you have to put into it. That's where it's kind of important to at least consider the soils for the productivity to cut down on the amendments that you have to add. Hmm. So it's like a puzzle that you're putting together, but you're using nature to help you put together the puzzle. Yeah, it seems a lot easier to make the habitat or you know make the food or whatever you want to call it putting it in the right place to improve your hunting success is 100-fold more difficult to, to process Absolutely. in the normal human brain. Yep. And there's so many things you have to take into account. I, I've got a slide that I show in, in various presentations. I can tell you the nutritional carrying capacity of this. I can tell you nutritional value of that. Uh, I can tell you how to, to kill this, what to spray there, when, how much to do. That's science, okay? We know that. But how do you place these things, arrange these things on your property to facilitate and maximize in your hunting? That's art. Mm. And, and, you know, not to be cheesy, but, you know, all of y'all are artists, and I'm sure you can mm -hmm. probably draw better than me. But think about your property as a canvas and how you put these things together. Yes. Think about your access. Think about getting into the stand and out of the stand where you could wear a blue leisure suit and uh, Old Spice. Wash your mouth I know you never would. I, I figured I'd get a reaction. Oh, man. <laughs> but, I mean, look, but think about it. If, if you have, have it set up to where the wind direction is correct, now you, now you then talking. your scent is not as critical as it is if you're trying to force yourself into an area and it's blowing from the bedding area into into where you're your, your, your I, I want up your blues leisure suit if you could set it up to where you could get in your let's call them shooting houses whatever you're getting into theoretically you could get into it with that it and the field's got deer in it already and they'll never know you were there exactly that would be if yeah. you can try to because you, know, you got to get out. That. You got to do some work for that. Yeah, yes. and, and getting out is just as important. Think about where ninety nine point nine percent of the shooting houses are on the edge of the field. Of course. And so, what if those shooting houses are backed up forty, fifty yards in the woods? You cut some trees in the front to get all that bushed up. 
You don't access the shooting house from the edge of the field. You access it from a trail from behind. You can't see the food plot when you're climbing up. You can't see the food plot until you just get up into the stand, and then you're coming up over that cover, and there it all is. Mm-hmm. And and you don't have to shoot every square inch of the field. If you take out a tree here, a tree there, whatever, you've got various shooting lanes to get out there. Obviously, I'm talking about mm-hmm. rifle hunting. Sure. You know, that, that's that's decreasing your hunting pressure without deer knowing that you're there that is increasing your your daily observations because the deer are using those areas more in the daytime it's it's huge yeah. and there's you know there's some places I, you've already mentioned this but it just doesn't work well and that may as well be like bedding cover mm-hmm. you know that you're gonna skirt uh, maybe in the right wind or whatever but I've got a scenario at, at my family farm uh, that's that's perfect, and it, it needs a little bit of work, but uh, it's an it works great in the afternoon. You're overlooking a field, um, and there is a creek right before you get to the shooting house, and the position of the shooting house is to where that creek has flown. It's it's hard to explain uh, on a mic. But uh, the thermals from the creek in the afternoon where the water is flowing downstream is sucking. Yeah, it's at my back, and it's sucking all of my scent out from behind me and out to an area that is not good bedding cover that the deer never come from. And they come from the far corner of the field where it's thick, and it's it's almost impossible for them to smell me. You know, around here on on a warmish afternoon in the south when there's not a lot of wind and the thermals just kind of take over. Um, But that's the kind of stuff that we like to lay in bed and obsess about and Um, placement uh, to make huntability better. Toss this one out there for free, a little tidbit when somebody's setting up a property. Makes a huge difference. You've got your property roads. Where does everybody put their food plots? On the road. That's right. Mm-hmm. Instead of having like a little spur road to get to the food plot that is at least 50, and I'm going to say 100 mm-hmm. yards from right. the main road, you sit, you sit overlooking those fields and, and you're watching deer feed and somebody comes on the ATV on the main property trail, those deer are going to be feeding. They're going to lift their head up and they're going to follow the sound and they're going to put their head right back down. On those fields that are right next to the road, they're gone before the ATV ever gets there or as soon as it does. That is hunting pressure. Yeah. And and it's ironic. Okay, I hunted this stand yesterday, so I won't hunt it today. I'll, I'll let it rest for a few <laughs> days. But you're driving by it twice yeah. to get to the stand down the road. Right. You know, that is hunting pressure. Right? Your presence is the hunting pressure. Yeah. Sure, sure. You know, and I think it's uh, like some smaller properties. It seems like oftentimes we end up talking about larger canvases, but smaller properties might only be one of the things that you're describing. It might only be bedding area. I, I, I guess I'm asking a question is when, when you look at that map and if you had a 50-acre property that you, you know, your grandmother's property, it, it, the best use of that might be to create bedding area. Um, I, I think of some properties in the Midwest that has all the food and the best quality food a deer could ever eat all around it, but somebody's just bought 25 acres. You're special, 
right there in southeast Iowa. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And and you got or, or northern Missouri or central, wherever the case may be, you got all this food and whatnot around you, big properties. But you just happen to get the 25 acres or 50 acres that's in a, a special place. I'm not worried about food plots in that situation. No. I'm worried about developing thick cover that's going to hold deer because as soon as those cr- uh, crops are, are harvested, where are they going to go? Well, going place, to, what's yeah. your best probability of having a mature buck on his feet during daylight? It is not out no. where the food is. That's a very low probability. By far, it'd be what he's talking about. Yeah. So, look, I think Lanny needs to He's got Zumba class. Yeah. Got, uh, <laughs> got so if you, yeah, we'll let Lanny go ahead and leave if you need to. But uh, You've we, got we, mail. <laughs> uh, got to get out of here. So it's, but it is interesting to I, – I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I can't do all that on my property. I don't have – my property isn't set up like that. and just yeah, Some may only have one spot where you can have a food plot. And yeah. It may not necessarily be the most ideal. Well, that's why I brought up a minute ago. You can cut trees anywhere there's a tree just about yep. and let nature do it for you. So, I mean, there's usually a way in some form. Now, you might not can go in and create it by your own hand and till it and bush hog it and so forth, but, you know, typically – you know, there's a way to create it for, at a minimum, you know, to make the place into a great bedding area. Yeah. Well, and with a lot of this uh, mulching equipment, you a guy for, with you know, four or five hours can, can open up an area pretty pretty easily with some of this stuff. So, well, this whole thing has been fascinating, guys. Yes. I know we've, we've enjoyed it, and there's just been a lot going on today. Dr. Harper, we appreciate you being here and – and uh, thoroughly it, enjoy spending time with y'all. It's a fun group. Yeah, well, we've enjoyed Very you easy and to talk to. So, look, we always have our guest answer a trivia question, and then we have. So, you'll be answering if you get a, this question correct. We have a listener that has given us a review. Will win a prize. If I get it wrong, will he win two? If, if he get it, if he if he if you get it wrong, we'll give him your phone number. And then he, but we've never had a guest miss the question, so that that in and of itself. Puts oh, Bobby, a that's, pressure. So, that's so much pressure. I can't believe you do that to him. So, Mac, help us with this. Mac, who is he playing for? So, Doctor Harper, you are playing for Dave View. D A V. J-A-U. But has anybody noticed our listeners have some odd little <sighs> names when they leave these reviews? It's, uh, I'm glad we have a more proper name. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Some so, of them have been a little borderline. The prize today will be a Chapin Gamekeeper Edition backpack sprayer. Oh, yeah. Dave, brother, I'll try my best. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave left a review. Those are Thank awesome. you. And uh, uh, what does this review say? Great podcast. I'm a primary care physician and came down with COVID. During my quarantine, I caught up on a lot of housework and the podcast. Great therapy. I will now try to prescribe the podcast series, and that's where it kind of, that's all I got. Yeah. Okay. Well, Great review. You, yeah. Thank you, Dave. So. <laughs> all right. So, uh, that's all I got. Yeah. So, But, okay, the question is, these are all names for something. What is that something? Turquoise Elf Cup, Hairy Parachute, Cinnamon Jelly Baby, Weeping Tooth Crust, Witch's Butter, Elbow Patch Crust, Hairy Nuts Disco, King Alfred's Cakes are all names of what? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, okay. So there's one more we could have put in there. But there would have been a dead giveaway. Well, yeah. So we held oh. one out, but what? Well, it it sounded like some kind of cakes or desserts to me. But I'm telling you right up, that's a sheer guess. I I guess I'm the only one that missed the question. Well, no, let's not give up on you just yet. Let's tell him that that last it, one. It grows in the woods. Mushrooms. <laughs> he got it. Yeah. Uh, those what are names I, of mushrooms. What did I say it was yesterday when you asked me? I, I can't remember. Day lilies. Day lilies yeah. was my guess. <laughs> well, I was thinking it was some. That's the most number of uh, casual names for a plant species I've ever heard in my life. I'm thinking of some kind of natural forb or something that grows the, in the woods. The dead giveaway I, I, at the I, very I, end was chicken of the woods. And I was oh, like, we got to take that away. Well, that I, I mean, I, I know several plants, and none of those were plants. <laughs> I thought, well, it's not plants. Yeah. Common uh, names. And, for and some... I don't eat that many desserts, but and I certainly don't eat, you know, the, the processed stuff out of the little stores. But I thought maybe there's some kind of cakes or something <laughs> that you can buy. It's got those weird names, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not I'm not a... Uh, a huge mushroom guy, but a couple of those. Okay, I think I think I can get this because these, these are not plants. Yeah, they were pretty bizarre. But uh, I was listening so hard, I, I had no clue. I was sitting here with him, I had no clue. So, uh, Dave, get in touch with us, uh, and we'll get that backpack sprayer to you. So that's that's a great one. You've got a backpack sprayer in your truck. I saw it uh, this morning. We we use those a lot. Yeah, lots of applications. So look, uh, you, you've driven here from uh, you're, you. You live just south of Knoxville. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, you said something about go Vols or something like that. So, do you? Uh, do you, have you ever been around Peyton Manning? I have not. You know, they tell us he's a big. That he, he likes to duck hunt. Mm-hmm. Isn't I think he does. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, so that's my. That, that's kind of my. All right, I've my you, whole knowledge of uh, Vol football is right there. Right. So and you, uh, that and, and you listen to a Kenny Chesney song once. Yeah, well, I talk radio, Minor. so I don't. <laughs> so, is there anything else uh, uh, before we wrap this thing up it, that, to put a bow around that? Clo- is there anything we forgot that we didn't mention about clover maintenance, or just, or it, something we just like the general public to know about? You know, the, number one, we mow our perennial forage plots. Uh, a lot of people say, "Oh, he said ne- never to mow my no. plots." No, that's not that's not what we said. We're saying that with proper management, let's say management that includes some herbicide applications, you don't have to mow it as often. So don't leave with the with the wrong message. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the people of Tennessee are lucky to have him oh, as gosh. their extension guy because no uh, question. You you're you uh, I get the impression you're a guy that goes and does and and doesn't sit behind a desk. It's you're out there showing people how to do this. And uh, that, I think that's a big difference in f- some others. Well, uh, lots of property visits, uh, lots of visits with the extension agents who do a superb job in the state, as, as they do in, in other states. It's a shame that more people don't are not aware of their extension office and what they can get through extension, so they should take advantage of that. There's your gamekeeper tip of the week right yep. there, mm-hmm. right there. So is that different than the NRCS office? Yes. It is. Yeah, the uh, extension offices, you know, it's called cooperative extension. It's called cooperative because it's the federal government, the state government, and the county government all cooperating in terms of funding these positions 
through the land-grant university of the state. And so there are extension agents. Some, some states have an extension office in every county. Some, you know, have uh, an office that covers multiple counties. But there are extension agents throughout the state. And then at the land-grant university, there are extension specialists who uh, specialize in particular topics, issues. And then if the agents, when they meet with their county clientele, they have questions, need more information, then they have a specialist to draw on from for additional information. Sure. So, like, you can you can call the, the Clay County office here and ask a random question, and uh, they're not always going to know the answer to that, but they just call somebody and, else an extension and And, and if it is related to wildlife, out. they have an outstanding, outstanding extension wildlife specialist in Dr. Bronson Strickland. That's correct. <laughs> he does a great job. So, there we go. you know, if you've got a herbicide question or not sure what's going on with your tomatoes or how to do something in your garden, uh, identifying an insect, contact your county extension agent. Well, yeah, that's some some good stuff. Well, look, we really appreciate you being here. Uh, the, I, I want to say that I know your family's going through a tough time right now. We'll be saying a prayer for you. Safe travel back home. And, and I appreciate You're going to have some tough really. days ahead, but we'll be thinking about you, and we'll say a prayer for you. Thank you. And before we close this thing out, Toxie, I, I, I want to call a little recognition. Uh, Mr. Bill Sugg, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, got inducted into the Mississippi Outdoorsman Hall of Fame, if I'm he did. I'm saying yeah. that right. Most so, deserving too. Yeah. So uh, I, I we have I've been, I've had that written down a couple of times to mention, and I, it, it keeps getting pushed to the shout side. out to Uncle Willie. Yeah. I, did, did you? Were you able to go to that? No, he wasn't able to go. Is that right? Yeah, he had to miss it. Sure did. Cuz went on his behalf. Well, because uh, he and cousin I had been the first year they had it were inducted into that. So. I read a couple of you know d- local newspaper writers. It's pretty cool. It. It, it's, it's really neat and. I'm yeah. not sure who does all the nominating, but they they have, they a, they have a board. Yeah, and this, a, it's in uh, Leland, Mississippi now. So and they've the, got the, a big, big, big building in downtown. They devoted to that, and uh, they spent some money. They've got, you know, in seven figures of money from the state to help fund everything and get it like it needed to be. It's pretty cool what yeah. they put together there. Yeah, it is. I'm um, gonna say this: uh, years ago, uh, Bill Sugg was the first employee of Mossy Oak. If I'm getting that right, that's correct. I don't think you could have picked. A better person. He is such. A, well, I mean, I didn't pick him. I think God picked him. You know, things just happen yeah, sometimes. It does. That, yeah, it that, was. Uh, it was definitely destiny. Um, congrats to Bill. Yeah. Um, that's also, right. uh, the woman that taught my dad and granddad how to turkey hunt was also. Uh, she also won the Hall of Fame. How her, cool, her how name cool was, is that? Uh, Eleanor Wrestler. Hmm. You Special know, lady. I've looked at every year. It's only been a couple of years now, but. They'll induct people that are well-known, but they're doing a really good job of finding people like that. They're so deserving. You know, it's like I say all the time, I think I doubt we've ever had an article written or a TV show about, you know, the greatest hunters that there are. Uh, people look up to some of these people as heroes, but the best ones, probably you never even hear about. That's right. You know? And so our state did a really good job in finding some of these outdoor should-be uh, accomplishments and heroes that aren't on the radar screen but are truly authentic, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It sure is. So congrats to Mr. Bill Sugg. And, uh, well, let's look. We've been here a while. Why don't uh, won't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. 
Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.